Welcome to the Petrichor Marching Arts Podcast, where we talk all things marching arts. My name is Bryson Teal. I'm a songwriter, composer, and mixing engineer, teaching and designing for drum corps, marching bands, and indoor percussion groups on the East Coast, as well as my mainstay school, Newtown High School in Connecticut. I'm sitting down with performers, educators, and creators to discuss perspectives on the activity, to see where it's at now, and where it's headed in the future. On today's episode, I'm here with snare drummer and visual specialist Omi Bataan, and this is part one of a two-part series with Omi on approach to visual for the battery percussionist. All right, so we're back. It's been a couple months since the last episode. If you missed it, the episodes in August I put out were with Tyler Campbell talking about college band and a couple symbol podcasts as well with Rex Gutierrez and Kat Godfrey. But now we're back. We're getting to some visual focus stuff. I've recorded two podcasts with Omi Baton, and we are going through just kind of the philosophy of visual for the marching percussionist, how that kind of plays a role inside of indoor percussion and drum corps, and just different ideas that maybe a lot of teachers don't always think about, you know, even myself, in terms of how to approach visual in a way that makes it more of an integral part in what's actually happening. Obviously, this is a marching activity, but I think a lot of us, especially music-focused people, get very lost in the preparation, for example, for the music side of things and kind of let the visual to go to the wayside a little bit too much instead of letting it be a very holistic experience. So these ended up coming out really well, and I'm excited to share this with you now. How are you, Omi? Doing well, sir. How are you, Bryson? Doing all right. So actually, I forgot to mention this um, before, but when I woke up this morning, I had one of those Facebook memories, Mm -hmm. and it was of a video I posted in 2011 of the recording of the run through that you did with cadets in Meriden, Connecticut on October oh. 10th. I posted that video on October 10th, nine years ago. Oh, geez. Which is wild. Today's October 10th, right? I'm not tripping. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, I totally forgot that you were the first DCI drumline that I ever saw or DCI group I ever saw was you guys rehearsing in Meriden, Connecticut. Oh, yeah. That was a pretty rough rehearsal. <laughs> you told me that at some point. Yeah, that's cool, though. I, that's when I first saw Tim Miller, and then he ended up teaching 7th to mm-hmm. James was there, I would imagine. I don't know if he was there at that point or not, but... James Sparling? Yeah. Yeah, he was at Cadets uh, to mm-hmm. Yeah, so I ended up marching under him, too, so it's kind of funny to see all that. And it's crazy, too. I, there's another video I posted on Facebook that same year on tour of Crown, mm-hmm. and I was sitting directly behind Ryan Anderson, who would also be my quad tech in 2014 too it's something that was super bizarre <laughs> yeah drum corps is definitely a big small world <laughs> yeah but cool so obviously today we're going to talk mostly about visual mm-hmm. do you want to just go through who you are in general i've heard of you since i was in high school because of kevin and matt thompson and stuff uh, <laughs> teaching there but yeah, um, yeah i've always heard your name around and i finally ended up meeting you and i forget what year if that was 2017 or something or not but Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. I actually drummed with Matt Thompson at UConn uh, his senior year, I believe, my freshman year. Yeah. That was uh, 2008. 
2009. Yeah, that makes sense. Or, yeah, 2009. So, yeah, uh, my name is Omi. I marched snare drum primarily, started at Stanford High School, shout out Stanford Black Knights, went on to do Hurricanes DCA Corps in 2009, and then I uh, marched with Jersey Surf in 2010, and went on to Cadets in 2011, and marched United Percussion in 2012. After that, I had the amazing opportunity to teach the University of New Haven as assistant band director with Jason DeGroff as director, and also taught Norwalk High School percussion line for a few years. Stanford High School got back to my roots there. Cranston East, Rhode Island. Shout oh, really? To Cranston East. <laughs> yeah, I taught there my sophomore year in college. Oh, okay. Um, shout out to Greg Arsenal for giving me a chance to kind of get my feet wet. Um, taught a year at New London High School. And yeah, I've just been kind of helping out and teaching throughout my marching career. And it's been an amazing experience so far, meeting all these different personalities and different influences. You mentioned... Um, oh, I taught 7th Regiment, too, with you. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned up Stanford and Connecticut Hurricanes. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but both of those groups, while you were there, were, like, very good, right? Uh, so Stanford High uh, was a, an amazing experience. Um, that is where I first met... T-Gas, Alex Beltran, yeah. Rudy or Ruel Camacho, lots of great people came out of that program. And yeah, we were on the, I would say, definitely at the high point of the marching band there, uh, marching band and winter percussion at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of high quality instruction came out. Um, oh yeah, also shout out Fusion. I was caption head, oh, yeah. co-caption head, co-writer at Fusion for a few years. So... Yeah, it's been it's been a hodgepodge of experiences for sure in this activity. Cause I was gonna say, I mean, most people ended up knowing about all the people that were from Stanford, which mm -hmm. I think is really cool. And it's I feel like it's a little known fact at this point that that was a thing. I didn't hear about that for the longest time too until I started eventually hearing that everyone was from the same place and that line was actually pretty good. <laughs> it's a fun experience, and and I think that I think one of the coolest parts was we all kind of just do our thing. Uh, yeah. a lot of a lot of great performers and musicians come out of the East Coast, Norwalk High School, um, Brian McMahon High School, right. Russell High School, Stanford High School. Really great programs and and really really cool people. And was that at one point was Stanford's indoor program like a collective of multiple areas, or was that literally just Stanford High School? Um, that was so. Ruel, uh, for those of you who know Ruel. Uh, he's also Rudy. He marched Bluecoats. He's a quad drummer. If you've seen that video of him playing <laughs> all these awesome... Four-door minivan, all that. Yeah, four-door <laughs> minivan. Um, that's him. He came from a technical high school, so that was my year. So I guess, yeah, we did have some students coming in to drum at Stanford High, but primarily West Hill had their own program. Mm-hmm. I don't think any other high school in Stanford had marching programs. So right. I consider, you know, if you're marching at Stanford High, I just, in my mind, you went to Stanford High. But yeah. <laughs> definitely, I believe after uh, my time teaching there, they, they went independent for a little bit. I think that's what I'm thinking about, yeah. 
Right. Yeah. At that, I, I'm not too familiar with what the dynamic became after okay. that, but I know that no matter what happens, Stanford High is always that that little engine that could for the for the percussion. Yeah. Even now, like it's still so obvious that they have some decent training going on there. Like regardless of you know the kids that they have, um, I feel like some people don't pay attention to that, but it's totally recognizable. Um, mm-hmm. One of the cool things I think about Stanford High as a personality is. There's a lot of grit that yeah. comes out of that school uh, for a bunch of different reasons. But from what I take away from that is you have all these students coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds and they all unify under, you know, the Stanford high flag and yeah. have a mission to kind of just represent what Black Knight's percussion is and have fun doing it. So were all of you that were together there or a good chunk of you, like the people you mentioned, all at Hurricanes together at the same time? So or is that all separated? So T-Gas was there a year before I was there. Mm-hmm. And when I went in 2009, I was marching with, from Stanford High, Beltran, Ruel, Andrew Bishop, who is a snare drummer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he never did drum corps, but uh, he's really a talented musician as well. Also, uh, we had some people in the pit, Kristen... Morgan. Um, okay. It's it's so hard rattling off names because the years are definitely blending in. Now. <laughs> was uh, Shaq there the year that you were? Shaq was there. Uh, yeah. Norwalk High. He was the center at uh, Hurricanes. Yeah, I, I sometimes hope that those years don't get lost in the sauce because some of those videos are really cool. I've seen some of the Stanford videos and some of the Hurricanes videos from that year in general. But yeah, anyways, so the whole visual thing. Mm-hmm. So, do you have kind of like a basic philosophy of movement that you kind of highlight how you approach visual in general? So, my focus on visual hasn't really started until I started teaching with Fusion and CWP. Also, mm-hmm. shout out and RIP CWP. Oh, yeah, yeah. Taught with uh, Travis Peterman and Shaq. And that was where I really understood the intricacies of what visual does for an ensemble at the same time as the activity kind of forming to more of the visual pageantry aspect. And what I try to do is try to marry the concept of still playing well and having the music sound good while also moving and visually looking clean and a lot of that I'm, I'm realizing has to do with how the performers are feeling internally, how they're thinking, and how they're representing whatever the intention is to the audience. Yeah. The performance aspect I really dove into with College Band, actually. So I mentioned I, I marched at UConn. Um, I, I was given the opportunity, shout out Tyler Campbell, give me the opportunity to come back and teach at UConn and at UNH as well to really tap into what is it to be a performer who is entertaining versus what we focus on in drum corps with competition, what is it to be clean and entertaining? Yeah. Why not try to get those realms of entertainment, performance quality, performance presence and performer satisfaction all at the same time, no matter what tier or what level 
in the activity you're participating in. So right. competitive or not, if the performer's not having fun, there's a low chance that the audience is going to be having fun. If mm. it doesn't look good, then the entertainment value is probably going to get lower. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying my perspective on visual and how my philosophy has been formed is trying to encapsulate all of those elements. Okay. And what do you think would be the first step? It sounds like from you're saying that, you know, obviously we have to start with, you know, learning how to march all that stuff. And maybe if you're at CWP, everyone's kind of maybe just the overall higher level. But is one of the big things you have to start with the actual mindset in general, like you're saying, so they can, you know, even approach the basics exercises with the correct uh, way of thinking in terms of improvement, in terms of analyzing their uh, analyzing themselves. Yeah, I, I think so. I think Ricky Grosso does a really good job with this. Uh, culture building is very important. Shout out Newtown High School. I taught there with you also, and uh, Kevin Thompson and Ricky. So that culture is really going to be the first step to the why. Like, why are we here together right now? Why are yeah. we going to this rehearsal? Why do we spend X amount of hours committing ourselves to something, right? So the why, I think, needs to be discussed first because anything that we show on our face as an expression, there's an intent behind. A smile means what? You know, is it a sarcastic smile? Is it a you know, a happy smile? Is it a fake smile? Uh, anger means what? You know, you're, you're ruffling your, your eyebrows. Are you serious? Are you angry? Like, what is the intention? So I think one of the first things when you're building a program that is supposed to show or represent an emotion or a thought, the performers need to know what that emotion or thought should be right. just as a culture. So that that's kind of I think the first step. Okay, if you don't mind, I think I'd definitely like to talk about performance first. Sure. Because what comes to mind for me, um, even just in drum corps, the drum corps medium, like my first world class audition, I tell people this all the time, was with um, the Blue Stars um, in the winter of 2012, like the end of 2012 for the 2013 season. Mm -hmm. That's when John Mapes and Ian Grom were coming for the first time. So. We all got there Friday, and then Saturday, all the Pulse kids flew in. And at that point, I had never seen indoor in person before. Um, I had never, and not the level that those kids were at, especially. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and have barely seen enough videos that didn't look like they were filmed on a potato in 2008. So when they came in and actually just played like stick control for the first time, it mm -hmm. was almost shocking and a huge culture shock to how much they actually performed. Just mm -hmm being themselves on the regular Saturday at an audition camp in November, December, whatever, just playing eights and stick control. Right. I remember, I was like, I, just, I think like Sunday, I was already cut. And I, <laughs> or in Jan, I think it was Jan, no, it was like January at the second camp, I was cut or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but I was like literally taking notes about, so I didn't forget what that actually looked like and how that felt. Mm -hmm. because it's also just adding to their approach to sound quality and they all look like they're having a lot of fun, kind of like mm -hmm. you were saying. It made everything more fun when they were there. <laughs> it's definitely more intimidating, that's for sure, because yeah. there's all the Chino Hills kids, um, Ayala kids and stuff, and that's pretty wild for someone that's living in Connecticut. <laughs> you know, how do you want to see students approach performance right away? Like, is that something you hold weight in? Like, do you want them initially, like, as soon as you see them playing and 
stance right. that they're going for it and hoping right. that translates to everything else and trying to translate that yourself to the visual block. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think about how we define the word performance, right? Mm. Are we performing something that you, we believe in? Or are we performing something that should be taken as information? Yeah. And I think, again, it goes back to the intent behind the reason why performers are there. Because you can tell if somebody doesn't believe in what they're saying, right. subliminally or not, you can tell. It's like, okay, this is a great, this is a great drink. You should drink it. It tastes sweet. It's cold. When you're hot, it's a great refreshing drink. Okay, great. You, you, you told me the words. There are facts in there, but I didn't sell it, right? Yeah. When you take those same things and you're like, this is an amazing drink that will quench your thirst and it will satisfy you with its sweetness and it has this amount of fluid ounces and it tastes like this and if you like this thing, then you like that. There's, there's, a, there's a level of relatability that mm -hmm. is inputted in the delivery. And I think the more performers are tapped into themselves and understanding like how does this moment or does this show make me feel, it's more easily translatable to the audience. So for your example, when you were saying, when you were auditioning, you were taking notes on the vibe you felt and yeah. <laughs> you know you're intimidated by the people in front of you who are also auditioning there isn't like a well stand at this angle and then you're now more intimidating mm -hmm. look at this point in front of you and and at this level of intensity and then now you're going to be at a at a certain like measurable level of performance it's the beauty of the marching arts and arts in general is there's so much more of a human aspect in order to get that connection with the audience. So mm. it comes back to what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? And then all the other technical aspects kind of fall into place. How we play the drum, how we move our bodies, what technique are we using? Are we using bent leg technique or straight leg technique? All of that needs to have a foundation based in intent and purpose and i think that is where the beauty of performance comes out of yeah and how much of that do you think just comes down to confidence i mean i guess knowing yourself enough to understand how you're being portrayed is essentially yeah. confidence in yourself but i mean also like confidence from consistent rehearsal schedules and mm -hmm. everything just feeling like it's falling into place so that they can just do their thing and not have to right worry about I think confidence comes with time and constant self-reflection. Yeah. When I think about getting in front of the Yukon Drumline, for example, they're, they're not a competitive organization, but there is a lot of identity and pride associated with what it is to be in the UCMB and mm -hmm. what it is to be in, in the Drumline. That is what I look for when I teach that drumline. It is about getting to the core of, you're right here in this circle drill. Are you present? You feel good? 
you're doing exactly what you auditioned for. You got in, you're representing, you know, a top 100 university and you're going to be playing for thousands of people at, at Rush at Rushler Field, you know, whenever we get back into that zone post pandemic. But mm. essentially the first thing I talk with about is what are we doing here? What do you want to make this season? What do you want to make this drum line? Because it's not about hitting a clean roll. It's not about making sure that you're the best execution drumline. It's you are you are the Yukon drumline and you're putting everything out there on the field in terms of your soul, in terms of like all the rehearsal hours you put in, make it for something. And it's really cool to watch all of the different ranges of ability levels be able to relate to that concept. And then it is what it is for the pace at which each individual progresses. But you can tell when there's somebody with really great hands who doesn't want to be there versus somebody who doesn't have so great hands, but they are 200% in and they're having a blast and they're like laser focused. Yeah. I will take a hardworking person over somebody who is talented but doesn't work hard like any day just because it's a better vibe for the group. So that performance unification through purpose is, is definitely um, a big aspect of how I teach visual. And I'd have to imagine even that kind of, uh, you know, 200% in type attitude is not only going to make that happen, but also make them more likely to improve at a faster pace, I would imagine, right? If they're focused and they're mm-hmm. really about everything, I would imagine they could even overshadow someone that actually was more talented than them in the first place. Sure. You know, and hopefully. <laughs> yeah, but also the, the beautiful part is at the end of the day, if you're, if you're in a college band and not even limited to college band, but if you're in a musical ensemble and it's non-competitive and the only reason that you're there is because you love it, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily matter who you pass or who you're behind talent-wise, mm-hmm. in my mind. Yeah. Um, because, like, I'll use 2011 as an example. I never thought that we would win a championship, nor was that the goal. My goal was to stay alive. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. The rehearsal days were brutal. Um, I definitely was not one of the more talented people in the drum line, but we were all on the same page as far as like, this is why we're here. This is how hard we're going to work. And we're going to put the gas to the floor until the last performance. And then it just so happened that our last performance was the encore. And Mm -hmm. it was, it was just that mindset that wasn't like I'm comparing myself to other people or we're comparing ourselves to other people. It was, we're here for each other. We're moving forward. That's it. Yeah. And that really added to uh, the performance quality and really added to the show quality in general, I believe. Yeah, and I was talking to somebody literally yesterday about you know the idea of how normally if a drumline is all really good friends with each other and they're on board with putting in the work, mm-hmm. it usually ends up turning out fine. The setup for for the cadet for that cadet season, uh, I was told that I would have to drive up to UMass every weekend. Some of those guys, like Ian Whitaker, Tim Miller, uh, Yad, all those guys who 
what it would end up being is we would hang on Friday and then wake up Saturday, go get some Dunkin' Donuts, and then drum at Grinnell. And mm. just do that for hours. And it wasn't like we were teching each other or it wasn't like... It, it was just, let's just get the glue between this nucleus of people that much more solid so we know that we can rely on each other when uh, poop hits the fan. <laughs> you know, right. it's like when you're at your weakest, you know that somebody else has your back. And I think that's really important with any kind of group, regardless of the activity we're talking about, or regardless of any kind of music versus not music. If you're with a group of people and you need to perform, whether it's in corporate, whether it's in education, whether it's in, you know, landscaping, like whatever, you need to know that the people who are in your group have your back. And I think that really assists with the elements of confidence for on an individual level and then a, a group level. Okay. Because even taking that into, especially the indoor realm where things are getting pretty wild now, it's like mm-hmm. you're on this small floor, especially Dayton, you're just surrounded by all these people that are staring at you. And you have to do a lot of wild stuff, a lot of stuff that maybe might seem really funny to do normally, especially for people that are new to doing it. And I have to imagine it's like being able to execute all of that stuff at a high level, stuff that feels probably pretty intimate in terms of performance. Having that hive mind that's all in it together makes it so much easier to maybe see it for the first time and also just jump into that for the first time. Yeah, clarity the clarity of where the gaps are is very important for group improvement. So uh, to kind of make it more concrete, when you're marching, the best marcher makes the people on either side of them look right. Because Mm. if you're the only marcher that looks right, then you probably look wrong (laughs) in terms of like the grand scheme of I see 10 people, I see one person sticking out, am I going to think that, oh, that one person is right? <laughs> right. So I, that synergy is, is really important. Because especially with high school, you know, we're like doing all the dance stuff at Newtown. It's like, I mean, if we were trying to do that with my high school when I was in high school, it would have never happened. There's no way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't think even at Newtown would be possible if there wasn't a general culture built up with that over the years. So that new people that look like they would never dance in their entire lives and just go in there and just be like, sure, I'm going to yeah, do a yeah. sit roll now. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's why I'm like, I'm just so interested in the performance aspect um, and that confidence element to it and how rehearsals are set up and I, how you brought up how the culture is set up. Mm-hmm. Because I have to imagine that makes potentially your work or whoever's work is working with the visual ensemble or design mm-hmm. or whatever a lot easier. <laughs> a yeah. less pulling of teeth, I should say. Well, yeah, you, you think about the culture. I think about the culture as t- it could be uh, generally categorized as like two things. Is it a task driven culture or is it a mission driven culture? Mm-hmm. And it would be like, okay, task driven would be, okay, it is this competitive year. We need to get this score to get first place. Here's our show. There are three movements we need to have X amount of body moments here, X amount of features here. And all right, we got to play that perfectly. Great. Execute that. There's no soul behind it. Um, And the identity of that organization is defined by that one season rather than Mm -hmm. the organization itself. Right. 
So yeah. when you're talking about mission-driven, it is how is X organization going to represent itself this year? And mm -hmm. I think that is something that takes time to build and it takes consistent membership across, I say generational, so I mean like a senior who's been there for four years talks to an incoming freshman about yeah. here's what we do here. Uh, leadership is, is really important in that setting the tone as instructors is really important in that how we hold ourselves when uh, I'll talk specifically about, you know, uh, drum lines. Do we come into a rehearsal space and line up our drums or do we not? Do mm. we all tape our sticks the same way or do we not? Are we being inclusive of everybody of each section, like pit cymbals and snares, bass, tenors? Like, are we all talking as a percussion group or is it, you know, okay, it's the people on drums and then it's cymbals and then it's pit. You know, yeah. that all matters. How do you move together? Because what it comes down to is the commitment level of each individual person is going to be dependent upon, in my opinion, the cohesiveness of the group. So if, like, I'll just say, like, uh, if the cymbal line for example, is not included in many of the things that, you know, the snares, tenors, and basses are included in, how can you expect some kind of cohesion when it comes time to perform as a unit in the warm-up arc? Yeah. Oh, you got to shift the arc around. Oh, yeah, the symbols have to come in because their part's coming up. Like, I, I don't think that is... Me, personally, I don't think that helps the group. I think if we move, we move together. If we line up the drums, the cymbals need to line up their cymbals the same way at the same time. If we're writing an mm -hmm. exercise packet, ask the cymbal tech, what is the best for you to get your people warmed up so that we can pace a lot schedule so that we can line it all up so that by the time it's, it's book time, they're already there and there's no like, hey, where are the cymbals? Or hey, where are the basses right now? Or where are yeah. the tenors? Everybody's on the same page, and that's day one. So having a well-crafted plan on how to get everybody on the same page and also decide on what kind of culture you want is going to translate into the performance quality Yeah, on a psychological and emotional level. I think it's just, so, like, it's just super important to like, set it up with this idea because, again, it's like how can we really accomplish anything if we're not all on the same page for all this super intricate stuff, even just general body moves with drums on, it's still not an easy thing to do, especially nowadays. <laughs> right. <laughs> Including all the muscle, like the conditioning aspect, being able to actually maneuver your body mm -hmm. how you want it to. So do you, do you want to start off with the actual physical aspect in a specific area? Like do you want to start off with just, you know, fundamental movement or. Yeah, sure. Um, so when I was listening to Kat and Rex's podcast, there were so many things that they were sharing that resonated with me in terms of conditioning mm -hmm. that are, I, I want to say when I was coming up in the activity, they were overlooked in terms of how to be able to control your instrument and yeah. what 
you're going to do to allocate time and energy to get better at your instrument. And it was really cool to hear both of them talk about how symbols need to use conditioning way more because you're know, holding plates in front of your body is a major ask for your shoulders and your back. Whereas a snare drummer, you know, other than bass one, snare drummers have the easiest job, I think, you know, carrying <laughs> a small drum in front of you. Yeah. Um, maybe you have a cowbell or whatever, but you don't really have to worry about movement until it's time to move. But cymbals, because they need to, even if they're standing still, condition, it's already in their mindset. So my perception of that is, okay, if we're going to keep up with this trend in the activity where dance is included in everything and body awareness is included in everything, the conditioning part is like, okay, get a baseline first of what your body feels like when you're just standing there with no instruments. And we think about posture. What does your posture look like when you engage your core versus when you don't engage your core? What does your posture feel like when you lean forward, when you lean to the right or to the left, when you're rolling back your shoulders or when you're kind of hunching over, um, looking up versus looking straight versus looking kind of down. That all taps into different portions of the posture that we don't, at least when I was coming up, we didn't take time to become self-aware about as performers. It was really very much this is what you should do, just do it. So like yeah. one vivid thing I remember from 2008 um, at Stanford High was the head pop. There was a head pop where if we're facing backfield, you turn around and then when you halt, your head pops up. And that little thing was such a, a small lesson for me of, oh, everybody's faces flash up because it reflects the light and it looks sharp. So even if somebody, you know, fudged the halt, the fact that there's an articulation in the head, it brings everybody's eye to the head pop. So yeah. that was like a first introduction to how a visual element could increase the performance quality. So when you're talking about conditioning, it's very much how is your body structure presenting itself and that goes into um, core training, endurance, and mindfulness, really. Like, how in tune are you with your body? Do you know where your arm is? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, like, so many times when I am in front of new players or even more experienced players, there are habits that they just aren't aware of. And it's not through any fault of their own. Like, they, it, it's just something that, didn't feel like a physical anomaly and whoever was in front of them before or what they were doing before to see themselves, it wasn't just being addressed as like, Hey, this is actually an issue that could be causing you not to be able to make your dot here. Or maybe yeah. like this restep is not supposed to be a restep. Maybe it's supposed to be a touch step and your weight shouldn't be moving side to side when you change direction. Mm -hmm. So things like that, all go back to what is the baseline that a performer is coming in with and then assessing where you need to get stronger. Okay. And I, I like that point of just thinking about like, okay, like even just thinking about your, 
general set position before you even start moving? Like, mm -hmm. what does it actually feel like to have the shoulders forward rather than back or whatever? Because mm -hmm. um, it is always just like, okay, just do this. But no one actually like tells you to explore that. For old people don't very often tell you to explore that. And even I doing think, like the Hindu yeah. thing, I think mm -hmm. even doing that as a student, I never like put two and two together or two and two together because I was just like, yeah, I was folding and unfolding, but I wasn't actually being told to think so much <laughs> about like like what was actually happening. So I could imagine it's super helpful to have like a group of new students who never done it before and just be like, okay, like guys, what does this look like? If you look at your friend over here, does this look confident? <laughs> does, this right. feel, does this feel confident? What is mm -hmm. it, does it feel tense to have your shoulders crunched in like this? Stuff like that. And, you know, maybe those are questions they ask themselves, like, at a random point in rehearsal, like, when they're a junior or something. Right. And that's, that's kind of the, the thing I like about where the activity is moving. We're teaching body awareness and performance presence way earlier now, especially with dancers and mm -hmm. color guard members now being integrated a lot more commonly into percussion staff and design. Yeah. Some of the best lessons I've learned about movement came from dancers or color guard because a dancer comes in and they show, you know, these really boxy percussion, marching percussionists how to actually use your hips or how to actually turn in an angle where you would normally be restricted by harness so mm. it opens up this whole other realm of visual design and it also helps performers learn more about their bodies and how they move and where they need to improve their balance so i think including actual professional experts who know how to move without a drum on is really important and has been a major part in pushing this activity forward. And I think you, you kind of mentioned this, but that whole aspect, maybe just to clarify, is enforcing what it's like to just be more agile with the drums on, just because it's enforcing awareness? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So when you're act how much time would you normally actually spend on marching basics? Like when we're thinking of maybe designing a body moment for an indoor show. You know, are we focusing more on that type of content? Are we focusing more just on the fundamental stuff? And then once we get to the point where we need to design something, then it's like, okay, like, we'll just figure that out. Um, but we're relying more on our fundamentals to figure that out, if that makes sense. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think there's definitely a way to do both uh, simultaneously. And hmm. I'll use music... Uh, I'll use musical exercise as an example. So you have a writer and a designer of a show who already has their songs picked out and they know um, the tempo and, and you know, the dynamic ranges. Mm -hmm. The vocabulary that's going to be played could be included in the exercise packets. So when it comes time to actually play the musical phrase in context of the book, it's an easy, hey, remember exercise two? You're going to play exercise two three times, and then you're going to move to exercise five. Right. And it's like a lick. So same with visual. Um, you know, when you do, you know, from open first position with your toes pointed out in a V to open second, you're going to do that on beats one and then beat three. 
And then that may have been like part of the visual exercise that we were drilling over and over and over. Right. So having the vocabulary established through exercises can also help make the show uh, learning process a lot more efficient. That thing that is required of the designer is that they keep both of those elements in mind. What is the level of the performers? And what is the vocabulary I want to use to design this show? And then mm -hmm. put that vocabulary in context of the exercises. Okay, because this is like filling in a lot of gaps for me. I mean, I only did very standard drum corps, like very, very structured marching. Mm -hmm. So I guess I've never really put it together in terms of visual like that, because I, th I think most people's instinct is just be like, all right, we're doing asterisk drill, and then we're going to go do something else. <laughs> right, yeah. So, I mean, obviously asterisk drill is cool, and mm -hmm. it helps, but I definitely see your point of even, like, taking for high school's basic exercises and then altering them in a way or a creative way that actually ends up helping the show and potential things that could happen. Um, it sounds like from what you're saying, at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I think it's it, it comes to a point where you can just reference that thing they already did over and over and over and over during preseason mm -hmm. and say, in this body moment, you know, Bobby, you're going to do a plie. Do you remember what a plie is? Okay, great. You're going to do a plie on beat three. All right. Jan, you're going to do, you know, you're going to do exercise two where we looked left and then right. You're going to do that on beat five. And it is a really easy way to take that vocabulary and input it in the show design. And that helped a lot with teaching DCA and college band because you don't have 30 day, uh, you don't have 90 days to perfect something. You have weekends and then rehearsals during the week sometimes. And how are you going to give that information to all the members uh, immediately as quickly as possible while still producing a quality performance? Um, so all the winter camps, all the auditions, you're already setting the tone of this is what you need to learn and this is why. So again, it goes back to that idea of purpose. Why are we learning triplet rolls at 180 beats per minute at three inches or, you know, pianissimo or piano, however your height dynamic is right. in that drum line. Um, why are we doing that? Oh, because you're going to play a two bar triplet roll at, in the closer. The thing is when we were growing up, or at least when I was growing up being taught, I didn't even have an opportunity to ask why. <laughs> it was kind of just like, do it. Yeah. Do it because I'm telling you to do it. Now, as the activity is evolving and students are becoming more savvy uh, with YouTube and you know, learn the lick, the Vic Firth licks or whatever, hmm. there is now more of an analytical thinking of why are we doing this? Why is that? And it's easy as a designer to be like, we're doing these exercises because half of this stuff is going to go in your drum feature. Now everybody's hyped about the exercises. Yeah. And everybody's hyped up about like, I need to be able to do circle drill at 196 beats per minute and change directions on a dime because there's a sick moment coming up in the drum mm -hmm. feature and I need to be able to do this. So putting the exercises in context of the show, not only adds efficiency to like learning the show, but it also, again, reinforces that sense of purpose of why the hard things that we have to drill in are important. 
it makes me think of how long I've spent in like a rehearsal, you know, it would be like two rehearsals in a week and then there's a show on Saturday or something for high school and how much time is spent on like learning how to spot a turn and like the nuance of that. <laughs> yeah. So it totally makes sense just doing that right away, you know, probably something that'll happen in a show possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're, when you're setting up exercises like that, um, and this is definitely a very fluid thing, but are you, or would you prefer to listen to a lot of stuff ahead of time? I know like sometimes drills done very on the spot, a lot of bodies mm-hmm. done like very on the spot. Um, but do you prefer to kind of listen maybe to an MP3 of something that's going to mm. happen and then maybe in your own head perceive something that might be cool in that moment, maybe within the context of how hands are actually moving, hmm. um, you know, the audience engagement, maybe during the energy level of that part? Yeah. Or are you like mostly trying to interject a lot of um, basic, still fundamental body skills that will probably be used in the exercise? I think there is a mixture of it. So it's, yeah. it's almost like it's almost like the question you're asking is, before you sit down and write a book, are you memorizing every word you're going to use in the book, or are you going to just focus right. on the story? And I think it is a mixture. So as an instructor, you want to know what kind of level your group is at collectively and what kind of level each individual member is at. Mm. Um, so that kind of gives you a sense of what they need to improve on and what they need to uh, get reps on for the exercise packet. For yeah. me, then I have like a bank of like, okay, they I know they can do this really well and I know they can't do this really well. So maybe, you know, it kind of informs how often I use something in a visual uh, design. Okay. But when I look at how it aligns with the music, I listen to the MP3 a bunch. I try to think about, oh, that's a really great impact point. Um, And I generally think about the idea of a visual moment in shades, not a defined, like, this is how people will do it. Like, I I can't do it like that. I need to see it and then trial error, trial and error. So the shades come in the form of me marking in the music, like in the bar line. I'll notice that there's like a unison... um, a unison hit across everything. And then I'll notice there are cymbal chokes here, here, and here, or I'll notice that there's a longer phrase here. And maybe that is a slow fluid motion into a really sharp staccato, sharp articulation visual. So I'll, I'll physically write in my music, alternating ripple here, or from this beat to this beat, and I'll do a tie uh, you know, to a point slide into the planted foot. And, I, and I'll, I'll have like my own little codes for what the thing is. And then when I actually teach it, I will be referencing that, but then demonstrating to the students and then seeing how it actually works out. So I'm, I'm throwing paint at the canvas. I'm, I know the colors, but I don't exactly know where they're going to go just yet. I need to see what it looks like, how it feels and how it sounds in person. Because at the end of the day, that awareness needs to stay on. If something doesn't look right, it doesn't matter how many hours you spent designing it, your ego has to be out of it. If it doesn't look good, it doesn't feel good, you have to change mm-hmm. it. So it's it's definitely a multi-pronged approach of establishing expected vocabulary by assessing the ability level of the group and the individuals, and then looking at the music, listening to the music, taking notes, and then 
the final step is trying it out and doing it with the students. And depending on how comfortable you are with your students, you can say, like, what do you guys think? Is that fun? <laughs> do you like doing that? Does that look awesome? Like, here's a video. I'll show them a video of like, that's another thing, reflecting on video recordings, like taking a video of it and then looking at it and seeing, okay, where does my eye go? Because mm. then you're putting your theory actual into application. So, oh, I thought this would be a cool ripple effect. It actually doesn't do anything for me because they're in the back right corner. Uh, we yeah. should take that out and move it here. So a lot of reflection and um, planning and organic development. Okay. Okay, yeah, because I'm like trying to ask the question. I feel like it's always on the tip of my tongue, but that like explains all of it. I feel like I could ask the right question now. <laughs> <But> now <laughs> so good. it sounds like the... Um, like for just general prep, it's like preparation meets opportunity, I suppose. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly that. And it, it makes me wonder, like, okay, like I'm a, if I'm a visual designer working for a show this upcoming season, say, say there's a season um, that can be done in someone's high school. But um, if the whole show is written, I would imagine, you know, even while thinking of the exercises initially, I would be listening through the entire show, mm -hmm. and maybe even thinking of those moments. For, like highlighting the sh like the shades of those moments possibly mm -hmm. first and then applying potentially that to exercise and maybe just simplifying them more. Yeah. So everything's kind of like a tiered process. Totally. Yeah. I mean, in most, uh, I even want to say all, in all of the drum lines I've been in, there was always way more exercises in the exercise packet than we end up playing at the end of the season. Yeah. And I, I think that's just a natural progression because you know, you don't need to be doing, uh, I don't know. Like an etude. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't need to be doing like a whole spree. And then really it's supposed to be just for like grace note placement. <laughs> it ends up just being like isolating the grace note and then isolating the primary stroke and then playing it at the same time and then using the actual phrase in the music as the exercise later on. Yeah. So part of the exercise packet that is set out is a weeding process and a tree shaker so that is expectation setting and then as you move deeper into the season and the show becomes developed more and more it kind of funnels down into like okay here are the basic elements we need to have down for this show this season yeah okay that's cool yeah i i'm like trying to like my best to like figure out like everything that's supposed to happen because i'm so i'm like obviously been a visual member of an ensemble, but I never like get so detailed with how everything runs. We always like let other people do that job. Uh -huh. yeah, <laughs> but totally. I also feel like same thing with the symbols. Like I like feel like very disconnected and I can only make so many comments mm -hmm. about like even how a show is designed because I don't quite understand the whole aspect to it, but that's yep. really cool. I, I've never really thought about it that way, but it makes so much sense. And it seemed like such a straight ahead process. It makes things so much easier and more efficient. <laughs> yeah, I think teaching at a bunch of different places and being involved with a bunch of different staff cultures really helped me understand the basic, basic elements of what visual looks like, regardless of the level. Mm -hmm. You know, like a, a clean sticks in or a clean sticks down looks good no matter what uniform you're wearing. Yeah. If it's together, it's together, it looks great. So having, having a better understanding of the commonalities between how the human body kind of moves mm. helps guide my philosophy on how I teach visual, regardless of the 
regardless if it's competitive or non-competitive, regardless if it's a novice group or a very experienced group, it's it's all the same to me in my mind. And with um like topics like like body control, like you suggested, do you have to think a lot about literal muscle groups and how muscle groups move or how like literal appendages <laughs> move and like <laughs> to actually start creating the body the best way that you can, especially with the restrictions of the harness and drum? I think part of it is experience. Like you need to know for, for me as a snare drummer, I know what hurts on my body mm-hmm. when I try to do certain things. I know with a certain carrier, whether it's, you know, a Mapex carrier uh, that digs into your hip, or if it's um, a Yamaha carrier or a dynasty carrier, like the new dynasty carriers are like roller coaster strapping things. Like, yeah. They're so padded. <laughs> um, when I first started, the dynasty carriers were like very uncomfortable. We had to buy like yeah. So a lot of that goes into experience in order to be able to relate to the performer. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're asking a performer to do, I'll just use the the, the seated roll or the hip roll that you're talking about. Asking yeah. them to do that with a harness on literally does not make sense. Yeah. So when you have somebody coming in who's never done um, the activity at a level with that specific instrument trying to tell you to do something, it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Just like I will never teach a cymbal player how to do anything with something. Like I have no idea. Um, so it's really important to get people in front of the students who know not only the knowledge, but also have the experience so that they can relate to what the performance experiencing. And that's yeah. not to say anybody who hasn't marched drum corps is not allowed to teach. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if you don't know how heavy cymbals are, pick them up. Yeah. If you don't <laughs> know how heavy a bass five is, wear it. You know, if you mm-hmm. don't know quad, like when I was teaching CWP uh, in the deconstructed year, we had to figure out how the quads felt when there was two uh, drums on oh. one side and then one drum just kind of on its own on the other side. Like, how yeah. does that affect movement? And how does that affect your ability to turn to your left shoulder or to your right shoulder? Right. So shout out to Andrew Rubato. And, like, he had to deal with that a lot and try to figure out what does it feel like. So what it took was we as instructors had to put on the equipment and feel what the visual demand would actually feel like. Mm-hmm. So there is a level of... I want to say humility and a level of empathy designers and instructors need to have if they're going to be able to truly put in a moment that makes sense for the performer and is effective visually. Yeah. I think that brings up a couple of things. It's like if I'm, you know, a director trying to find people for my group, whether it's outdoor or indoor, you know, there is advantages to having Yes, one person that's good with dance, maybe it's a colored art person, and also, yes, one person that knows visual very well with the drum. Um, but even then, like, I, I guess, for example, say they could only hire one person, they, they got the colored art person. Right. Um, you know, maybe that person could literally take home one of the drums. Right, somehow. Exactly. And, like, figure that out, or even just grab a harness, like an old harness, and, like, start mm-hmm. understanding what that feels like, too, just with the upper body. I don't, I don't know if a lot of people necessarily think about that. I've never seen many people put on a drum. I think I've seen you put on a set of quads before, for sure. <laughs> I, I do that because if I'm designing body, I always have the mindset of a snare drummer. 
So yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, you could turn on a dime like this. And then one of the <laughs> tenor, uh, one of the quad members will be like, yeah, I don't think I could do that. And before <laughs> I say, don't give me that. Yes, you can. I'm like, okay, hang on, give me your give me your equipment. Yeah. Um, after you know troubleshooting internally, and I'm like, okay, maybe we can do this, maybe we do that. Then I scrap the idea and I try something else. But unfortunately, I've seen some instructors be like, just do it. Just do it because I'm telling you to. And <laughs> it's not necessarily an efficient way of doing it because they could get injured, first of all. Yeah. Second of all, maybe it isn't worth the effort. Maybe it's not that effective. Right. And maybe you could do something way simpler that is more effective. And mm. that is something that I've seen a lot of great groups do. Simple is very effective. And yeah. I've taken that concept with me to college band. You know, you could, you could do a triplet 16th note grid with grace notes everywhere. But, you know, the audience is going to be like, okay, cool. You just played a bunch of sounds. Versus if you do like a stick flip in the middle of, you know, quarter notes, that's like, whoa, that's awesome. Great. That's simple. <laughs> <laughs> and it's easy to do. So let's just do that. All that makes me think of like muscle conditioning, like mm -hmm. especially for quad players, you know, trying to kneel on the ground and get back up is a whole different story than oh, the yeah. So, I mean, even in high school, it's like a lot of kids just don't have that in them. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. <laughs> it's totally hard. I think that's where the conditioning comes in. I think there is an important aspect of core strength that needs to be addressed no matter what, because your core is literally the thing that connects your shoulders to your hips. Yeah. And if you don't engage your core at every moment that you're moving, it's going to look sluggish and it's going to look slow. And you times that by however many members are on the floor or on the field. That's a very dirty looking set. Yeah. So core control is in every aspect of, your body function when it comes to movement. Okay. Um, I've noticed that a lot, especially with the pandemic, I'm getting back into martial arts. It's all about core. And now that I'm focusing on that, I think back to all the comments that were made to me when I was marching, engage your core, lift out of your hips so you can move smoothly and glide when you're marching. Yeah. And it's, it makes sense, you know, and how often do we think about using our core when we're walking? How often do we think to, to use our core when we're just standing there? And if right. you make that second nature, then that's one less thing you have to think about as a performer. So that would be something that I would suggest to uh, any group that I teach. When you're going upstairs, how often do you bounce? You know, when you're, when you're running, if you run at all, mm. you know, can you run? Why can't you run? Why does it hurt? Why does it feel like, you know, you're off balance? Are you engaging your core? Are you absorbing impacts and, and helping your joints be protected by having a strong core that absorbs that shock every time? Right. That's wild. It, it's such an easy thing to ask students to do, too. But I don't, I don't think a lot of people don't even think about it. I certainly don't think about it that way. So that, I mean, you could just literally like, hey, literally like if you walk up, a set of stairs mm -hmm. like are you do you bounce yes or no mm -hmm. and that's like already like breaking part of the wall <laughs> yeah to figuring it out <laughs> i 
I think I think one of the one of the themes that I see is if you're in band or if you're in mar- if you're in drumline, you're not a physically active person. I think that is complete false. Yeah, it's completely <laughs> false. Like this is a physical athletic sport, but kids go into it not thinking it's the same as like football or not mm. thinking it's the same as a sport. So then it's the first time they've heard you got to use your core. You have, you have to understand yeah. what your center of gravity is. And to many of these students, it's the first time they've been asked to do something with their body that involves athleticism. Mm-hmm. So the sooner we can incorporate that and make it commonplace to talk about core control and talk about body posture and talk about conditioning and, and the athleticism involved to make a great, uh, performance, then the sooner we can get higher level players in competitive atmospheres, if that's what they want to do. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I definitely underestimate that. I mean, I still grew up doing Taekwondo, so I still had some semblance of that. Nice. I, I don't think about that. So, I mean, even after doing several years of drum corps, I totally forgotten what it's, or maybe I never truly knew what it was like to really not pay attention to that stuff. Cause I was still playing right. sports as a kid. Right. Yeah, exactly. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know you did Taekwondo, man. That's so cool. Yeah, I did Taekwondo up until I moved to Washington, or sorry, moved to Connecticut, rather. Um, oh, nice. I forget what belt I got to. I think they're in my closet. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I think I have the first board I ever broke in my closet somewhere. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's like the date on it. Everything is about like 2003 or 2002 or something. Wow. That's pretty sweet. Um, but yeah, so... Even for myself, I've definitely 100% underestimated that. I think the core, I think your body awareness and your ability to control your body goes hand in hand with how confident you feel. Yeah. It's, it's also that confidence piece is going to translate because this is an art. It's an mm-hmm. art form. Whether it's a musical representation or a visual representation, how you're feeling in the moment is going to translate to the audience. Yeah. And one of the funniest questions I get some, from students is, how are we supposed to feel? <laughs> and <laughs> it's like, to me, it's like, well, how do you feel? Yeah. You know, like, how do you feel? Do you feel dumb? Do you feel dumb doing this? Because it looks like you feel dumb. But if mm-hmm. I'm supposed to tell you you're supposed to feel, you're supposed to feel excited and you don't really feel excited, it's not define the emotion. It's address how you're feeling. Are, yeah. You don't. You're supposed to be aggressive in this moment. Okay, fake aggression. Okay, this it looks inauthentic. What's going on? Well, I'm actually it. having trouble with this part in the music. Oh, okay, cool. So let's. You don't have confidence in this part in the music. There's no way you can have now extra bandwidth to resonate confidence. Mm-hmm. So now let's now let's address the actual technical issue. So you can then put more mental bandwidth in the performance aspect. Yeah, a lot of that is. How comfortable and capable are you with the show design and the demand? And then from there, how much bandwidth do you have left over to put into the actual performance quality yeah. so that the second nature stuff is the show and what the task is. Now you add your own performance quality and you put in your personality into the performance, which is yeah. where it gets really fun. And I guess if you start eliminating those questions with kids, I mean, the easier it is for them to find that within themselves or their own perspective, right. perception of it. I think one of the coolest things I learned from Dan 
working with Dan at Hurricanes is that he does the whole um, kind of like Excel spreadsheet type thing, like Google Sheets thing, mm-hmm. where each part of the show, even as, as it's written, is filled out with every aspect of what's going on, including like multiple versions of like the emotional content or or whatever, however you want to split that up. Sure. Um, but that not only like helps designers, but that's also a document that can be available to instructors if they ever get like one of those questions from the kids. But also it could, I guess, potentially be available to maybe sexual or students um, so that everyone's just always aware of what's supposed to actually be happening and there's never a question about it. So if they're trying to interject their own idea about it, it's not like, okay, I'm being told in March that I have to have this emotion here. So now I'm going to like think about the emotion process, what the show is also process. how I'm going to feel about that. Also try to think about my awareness of how I look all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And then turn it into like, okay, like, am I like, right. I heard about this in December. Like, am I actually doing this still? Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's definitely academic information versus inherent information that, yeah, you need to sift through as a performer because you're not thinking about bar bar line 158 and this must be at three inches after a 12 inch attack you know you're not thinking that you're thinking oh this is my favorite part <clears throat> like, oh, this part's sweet oh here i have to relax a little bit all right relax let it go and then yeah a lot of energy it's more macro emotions and macro um I, I want to say thought triggers where that's how you memorize your show. At least that's how I memorize my show, mm-hmm. but all the work of all the detailing and the reps, that's all done way in advance so that once you're in performance mode uh, or once all your rehearsals start becoming more and more performance mode, mm-hmm. it is second nature to just have all those details ironed out. And then you just remind yourself, okay, here's where, you know, I, I think this and I do this and I feel this. Yeah. And it's less about, you know, three inches, six, nine, three, six, 12, three, 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 three. It's like, there's no way you're going to think about all that in real time. Yeah. It, it just seems like kind of the, the rule for success is to just start building everyone's vocabulary early on, whether that's the music or the visual or the show, and like their understanding, like if it's a show, like, being able to read the book first and then as you're almost like rewriting the book yourself, mm-hmm. being, just becoming a master of that book as opposed right. to being like a teacher throwing a book at them. They're trying to like figure out the spark notes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to like write their interpretation of it for their like five point essay that's due in class or something. Exactly. I think one of the, what you just described uh, brings me to a quote. I forget who said it. So sorry, but uh, the quote was, it is the performer's job to fill in the space on the page that the composer did not write. Yeah. And all of that has to do with how you understand and find purpose in the music and how you portray that music and how you express that music as best you can based on the notes that the composer intended. So that leaves a lot of really cool opportunity for performance to own it you know and make it their yeah. own uh their own rendition of that triplet role or that body movement because when you see it as a group you're like okay that was oh awesome that was blue nights or you know that was newtown high school or 
that was kid answer. That was Cavaliers, like whatever. Mm. But when you look at the performer on an individual level, you're like, they're into it. Like, look at that. They're that they believe in what they're doing. And I am with them in this moment. And I think that's the job of the performer to engage the audience in a way where they are so proficient in what they're doing that the audience has no choice but to just be in awe of the performance. And when a performer has a whole list of things that, you know, aren't executed well, and they show that they're recognizing that they're not executing it well, it's a distraction for the audience. Or they drop their stick and the performer, their face now looks like upset the rest of the, <laughs> the rest of the performance because their stick is like hanging on the ground. Yeah. You know, I've seen top, top groups break or top groups drop a stick. But the ones who recover from that moment and play it off really well are the ones who are just excellent at performing regardless of whatever error happened because nobody's perfect, right? But that's what you yeah. strive to be. But beyond that, it's the level of performance that kind of overshadows the small blemishes or imperfections that could be happening. Yeah. It's interesting how much of that is just supported by the preparation aspect. I mean, it's such an easy concept to say like, okay, like, well, make sure we focus on these exercises, whether it's the music or the visual exercises or making sure people are aware of their show or have even heard their show in its entirety Mm -hmm. before, but also thinking of all that stuff within the context of the grander scale like are these exercises again like you're saying reflecting show music um, in both aspects of the visual and the music and just how much time that saves how much time that just as instructors allows students to do what they need to do and yeah maybe maybe that is what gives them more confidence because they don't have to like they're not as confused about what's going on they know exactly what's happening hopefully um if they're paying attention mm-hmm. <laughs> through the whole process but I yeah, just never, it's, it's, i've never thought about that how streamlined that actually is and this is just my philosophy. This is definitely not the answer. I think this is just what makes it make sense in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, building a culture at, at UNH, building a culture at Fusion, uh, at CWP, all of it had to have a very intentional planning phase where how are we designing the packet? How are we designing the audition packet? Yeah. What is the show? How are we sharing information with the members so that they understand the concept. Like um, the Dream Electric, Mm -hmm. that CWP show, we were sharing a bunch of different pictures and videos of cyborgs, you know, looking at the sky and (laughs) thinking about concepts like the matrix and thinking about concepts like what is reality, going into philosophical discussions about this and then how to take those ideas and represent it on the floor so it's accessible and relatable. Um, that is something that takes a lot of time. And I, in my mind, unless you're superhuman, you can't be doing that during the heat of the season. Like, yeah. You can't be thinking about where the rehearsal site is. You know, how many hours do we get in the gym? Do we have to move all these logistics? And then also be like, hey, so what are we trying to do for movement two? <laughs> yeah. And it's like a February show is coming up, you know, so. Yeah, I can't even um, tell you how many times in drum corps that we've had to be like gathered together like during a tour and they like slowly movement by movement reveal what it's actually supposed to mean mm-hmm. and we're like it totally was the vibe that they didn't know what it means and it, they figured it out got it the day before but it's like 
well, how destructive that is. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> I think I think there's definitely a middle ground between like not knowing what the final product is actually going to be versus mm-hmm. still trying to plan out the intent of the show. Yeah. Like if it was, if you're getting ready to paint something like a sky, and all you got are brown colors, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you that's what it feels like. <laughs> it's like we're, we've been painting this whole time, but it's like a blank image because we don't have any of the colors we need. Right, yeah. <laughs> so there's definitely some planning. And again, it, it, uh, it goes back to self-awareness. Like the designers and the instructors also need to be self-aware. What are they not good at? What, what gaps need to be filled? I do not know symbols. I need to have a person who's done symbols and been a symbol performer uh, a symbol member with experience so that we can have abolished symbol line. There's no yeah. way I'm going to be like, I'm our snare drum. Let's just get whoever got cut and put them on symbols. And then I'll just teach them how to bang them together. Like that is not how I would want my snare line to be run. So why would I have that be for any other section? Yeah. And I think that is where the self reflection kind of comes in of, do I really know what my shortcomings are as an instructor and a designer and can I recognize that so that I can get people on board who can fill that gap because it's all for the benefit of the student and the, and the performance. So um, that self-awareness piece kind of goes in to a lot of aspects of this activity and other activities in general. Okay. So yeah, I think that really encapsulates a lot. I mean, it almost makes me wonder if we should just do like a part two we could go back in and do something about the, the true like implementation physically more oh, so. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I know we're supposed to cover that today, but uh, <laughs> we got into like culture building and stuff, but I always appreciate that. <laughs> um, our conversations are always usually very, uh, I feel like for as long as I've known you, we always kind of get really analytical, which I, which I enjoy about the conversation. <laughs> so yeah. I would totally get talk about the technical aspects of movement and marching and, and kind of the pedagogy behind that. Yeah, that'd be cool. I know, I just had never thought about how much, how much everything is like so related mm-hmm. inside of each aspect of a show or of a, of a marching ensemble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I learned that across all the, uh, the, across all the different levels of this, of this specific activity that I taught. Yeah. It's not enough to be like, we got to be the best. That is not a driving force of like, Mm -hmm. if you're comparing your purpose based on other groups' execution level, then you will only be as good as how people view you. Yeah. And I think that it puts an immediate ceiling on it. So uh, that self-reflection piece and, and understanding what do you want your culture to be in the organization regardless if it's competitive or not, is going to have a lot to do with how that performance quality is going to translate to the audience. Yeah. There was one thing um, that Rex was talking about, how SCV comes up in a lot and the symbols will plow through you yeah. going to, right? So there's no musical aspect to that. That is strictly a visual presence that people just know to get the F out of the way. <laughs> Same yeah. idea. Same exact idea. Before anybody picks up a drumstick or before anybody hits a first note, the lot, the audience in the lot is looking at how the drum line is holding themselves. Right. And that's going to form a frame of your opinion. So, you know, 
business interviews, same thing. You come in in tattered clothes or do you come in, you know, dressed in formal wear? Uh, do you stand up straight or not? Do you smile or not? Do you look like you're closed off or do you look open and confident? Like it's all subliminal things that go into the visual aspect of a performance. 